0: Thank you for downloading our podcast. The prophet Hosea receives a strange command from the Lord. The Lord tells him to take a woman of the night to keep it clean for the pulpit. He is to marry a woman who does not protect the marriage ban, and he is to build a house with this unfaithful woman. How can the Lord order a prophet to do something contrary to his own will? What is the purpose of this book? Overall, what is the prophet Hosea teaching us today? Well, I want you to imagine what it must be like for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And the thought of being there initially at the first creation and having the joy of fellowship with God, knowing that the Lord is the one who truly is there, communing, walking in the garden with you. And then the tragic day when they move from being naked and unashamed to being naked and ashamed. Scared to enter into the presence of God. And Then when Christ, or the angel of the Lord, most likely, interviews Adam and Eve, and we find the tragic day that they've decided to sin and rebel against him, to think about Genesis 3.15, and the shock that must have been, that the Lord says, I'm not going to give you what you fundamentally deserve, death, hell, immediately now, but I'm actually going to send another in your place. I'm going to preserve a line of humanity unto myself, and I will send the champion to crush Satan's head. Adam and Eve, no doubt, probably didn't fully understand the implications of that immediately, which is why the Lord most likely slaughters an animal, takes the the skin of the animal and makes clothing for them. But you think about how Adam and Eve may have thought they were in the clear, until all of a sudden we turn the page in Scripture and we think back to that history of Cain and Abel, where their own children, one child clearly loved by God, a worshiper of God, another child clearly the seed of the serpent, and how the serpent seed rises up and murders his brother, as if. An infant's loss is not tragic enough or a child's loss is not tragic enough that here the loss is a result of murder. Murder between brothers growing in such sibling rivalry that one is jealous of another's place before the Lord. The pain, we do not read of what it was like for Adam and Eve, but we can imagine the great pain they endured and how the consequence of the fall would hit home and these are the things that when hosea is reminiscing about the lord meeting his people these are the emotions uh, the recollections that god wants us to think about as he has already mentioned who israel is like adam they have transgressed my covenant in other words here i am creating adam in the garden of eden creating this beautiful sanctuary, I've given my people a beautiful land, brought them into this land, and how have they repaid me, is the implication of where we are in Hosea. And so when we look at this tension and we think back to that history, we can wonder, has the serpent seed triumphed? Has God lost? Has he forgotten the very victory of Genesis 3.15? How Hosea himself must wonder when he brings the word of the Lord to the people of God of what's going to be my fate. What's the fate of humanity in the Lord's covenant promises to Abraham? Are they still in effect as he reminisces the reality of who Israel is? And so is the Lord able then to protect and care for his people as we have claimed in Hosea. Is the Lord really going to prevail in terms of his victory? So, as we consider this, we just simply ask two questions of the text as we divide it from ten to fourteen, and then fifteen through seventeen. Has the serpent won? And is Abel's line done? Because Abel, being the seed of the woman, has gone failed. So the first question then, has the serpent won? We think about the Lord reminiscing about Israel. And he uses these metaphors, beautiful metaphors of grapes in the wilderness and the figs on a tree. The grapes in the wilderness, you can imagine, as one would travel through the wilderness, through barrenness. Famished, tired, thirsty, hungry, tired and needing energy finding grapes and and receiving the the sugar content in them to have the energy, receiving even the the watery uh, nurture that comes from grapes, and also receiving just the actual substance from the fruit. One could understand how joyful that would be in the midst of the wilderness. You think you're dead, all of a sudden you find life, and you can take these things with you on your journey. We think about the, the figs on the fig tree. And this is a metaphor, if you think of a farmer uh, who's growing figs, and uh, you can go out and wonder, am I going to have a productive harvest? Well, what's going on? And you, you see those figs on the tree. What a, what a wonderful sight. Your labor's not in vain. And that's the imagery of what God's saying when he saw his people in the wilderness. Like, like a farmer, like someone who's longing for that fresh fig finds that fresh fig and knows that everything's going to be okay, at least by the survey of it immediately. And so when when the Lord recounts his history with Israel, it's very ideal, it's very beautiful. Now keep in mind that when Moses recounts the history of Israel in Deuteronomy 7, it comes across more as an image of a face that only a mother can love. Uh, when you hear of Moses recounting Israel in Deuteronomy 7, he says, listen, it's not because you're the greatest of the nations. You're the least. It's not because you're the strongest. You're not the strongest. Uh, Basically, there's nothing that you bring to the table. I am the God who has come to a dead people. I am a God who has come to a weak people. And I am a God who has redeemed these people by my steadfast love and mercy. So the reality of what the Lord is celebrating here in Hosea 9 verse 10 is the reality of what Israel has become by his recreative power, right? There are people who are nothing and now there's something. The Lord looks at the fruits of his redemption and says, Wow, look at my people from a barren couple, now a great nation that I have led through the wilderness showing my redemptive power and mercy. But then he recounts a tragedy, a tragedy of Baal Peor, or Baal Peor, as some say. Either way, I'd I'd argue is is appropriate and fine. But this is a a time in Israel's history. It's very significant. It's actually recounted for us in Numbers 22 through 24. And if you're familiar with these passages, you're, you're familiar that it's Balak who has hired Balaam, the great prophet, Uh, to come and to speak against the people of God. So this this prophet is so strong and so mighty that whatever he says comes to pass in God's uh, cater to his will. Well, the irony is that Balaam comes to grips with the reality he's not greater than the God of heaven, and he actually encounters a real God who can really intervene and protect his people. And so Balak takes Baal, or Balaam to all these different places and fi- finally they come to Mount Peor where it's this high place of Baal worship where you think you're going to channel Baal in such a way that the God of heaven or Israel would not stand a chance. Unfortunately, uh, even Balaam himself cannot twist the hand of God. And he brings that wonderful oracle about the star of David, the star that's cited in Matthew's gospel, uh, predicting the messianic champion. But the problem of what happens here, we can say, well, then why is God so angry? When we go on in the story, we find that Israel, despite the Lord's protection, so it's important, there's actually a king who wants to destroy Israel, tries to get Baal to overpower Israel, that Israel turns to Baal in this place and engages in an immoral uh, interaction that Hosea is rebuking and in the fullness of the fertility cults, which we've already talked about and I don't think we need to rehash. Most likely it's possible that Gomer's come from this, but the Lord doesn't identify her as Uh, being a religious priestess, which is what they would say. He would say she's just a common woman of the night. And so it's important to see how the Lord gives his commentary on this reality and how Israel has engaged in this. And so the Lord is is saying, listen what you've done. I protect you. I shut down the prophet. I show my mighty hand. There is a king that wants to destroy you. And how do you thank me? By turning to the false gods, by engaging in their immoral worship and and sanctifying it and calling it good. And the Lord says, This is a detestable thing. They loved it. In other words, they desired this, it was a conscious pursuit. And so when the Lord recounts this, it's important to understand we are sinners, we need redemption. Apart from Christ, there go I, is the force of of what Hosea is recounting. Apart from the grace of God, we don't want to see where we fall. Going on then, as the prophet recounts verses 11 through 13. So verse 10 is a claim that the recollection of what has happened. Now in 11 through 13, the Lord is, is laying out what's going to happen. So the irony is that Baal is is the the god of fertility, the god of life, the storm god, the god of the harvest, and and so that's the whole purpose of of their religious interactions with, with Baal, to put it delicately. So as they engage in this, what are they trying to celebrate? That Baal is the god of life, the god of fertility, the god of production, and one of the things in the ancient Near East that maybe in our society we've, we've lost sight of a bit, but in the ancient Near East, one of the ways to preserve your legacy is to have children. Because as you have children, your name continues. And so this, this legacy would, would be something very significant for the people in this time. But what's happened? The Lord says, listen, you're going to turn to Baal for fertility, I'm going to show you Baal's not the god of fertility. You're not going to have any children. And whatever children you do have, I'm going to take them from you. Now this is pretty severe when you think about Genesis 3.15, isn't it? Because the promise of the champion seed is to come through generations, right? Right? the the Messiah is to arrive through the the reproduction and the genealogy of the woman and he will enter into history as the ultimate champion. This is why the Gospels, Matthew and Luke, have genealogies. They're showing that this promise has come to fruition. So if, if they're bereaved of children and the Lord takes these children, this is telling us that the Lord's covenantal purpose has failed. It's done. So if we read this on a superficial level, we can say, whoa, what is the Lord doing now? This this should really make us pause and take a step back and say, my goodness, has God failed? Is God not able to bring about the Messiah to conquer the serpent? Is it really that Israel is so stubborn that they're able to thwart the purpose of God in their rebellion? One might claim that. One may look at these verses and see that. But as he goes on, he recounts who Ephraim was. Again, picking up that fig tree metaphor, that that plant metaphor. That how Ephraim planted in the meadow seemed vibrant, seemed full of life. But we find the result of what's going to happen with Ephraim's future and turning to foreign nations for their comfort. They're going to leave their children out to death. I mean, what, what a terrible picture, isn't it? It's bad enough to be carried off out of a land, but then to watch the slaughter of the helpless before you. And the Lord's saying, this is a consequence of what's going to happen. Where's Baal to protect you? Where's this God you trusted in that I protected you against? Where is he? And this is where verse 14 becomes this tragic change. Because basically verses 10 through 13 is Hosea bringing the word of the Lord to the people. Verse 14 is a prophet's interjection where now he is praying to God. And he's praying to God saying, oh Lord, what are you going to give them? He's saying this is, this is not an easy message to deliver. And it's not. It's, it's rough. This is, this is sad, tragic stuff. Uh, that, that when you read it, I mean, you really should pause and say, wow, the depth of human depravity and sin, how tragic. But what he says is it's actually better for them, and it would be a blessing for them to actually lose their children and to not be able to nurse their children and bring life. I mean, that's a horrible prayer. If you really think about that, that's a horrible prayer. He's saying, let them go back to an Adam and Eve situation where they grieve the loss of their son. It's actually better to endure that than to go on and experience what they're about to see. In fact, this is what Christ cites in Luke 22 and also in Matthew 24 when he talks about the ultimate, well, the demise of Jerusalem and the ultimate final judgment he's saying, basically, those who are not aligned in my purpose, it's better that they don't see their children, that they don't uh, endure what they're going to endure if they're outside of Christ. And that's what he says in the way of the cross. He says, don't weep for me. Weep for what you're about to face, for what you're doing here. That's the ultimate tragedy. And so when, when Hosea utters this prayer, this is what Christ takes upon his lips. In terms of going to the cross. A tragic day. A day where we wonder what's going on in terms of the story. And is God really able to bring about his redemptive purpose. And this leads us then to verses 15 through 17. Where we ask that question. Is Abel's line finished? Is the Lord's redemptive promise done? I mean it's a valid question to ask when you read this. Because on a superficial level, it seems as if God's purpose has failed. But as we go through this, what, what is the Lord recounting? Well, he recounts more of what has happened. Not just Baal Peor, but now he puts something else sort of in parallel to that. It's not just at the beginning of Israel's history, but he's saying even when you went into the land. Now Gilgal, much where this began, is a high place. Remember, we talked about its rolling back taking away the shame Israel undergoes a covenant renewal ceremony they celebrate the passover they undergo circumcision before going into the land the point is they're reconsecrated unto the lord so Gilgal is is a high place it's a good history when you think about it initially and so if that's the case why does the lord begin to hate them there why why is this a place where where you have this, uh, this separation between God and his people, what has happened? Because after all, it seems Gilgal is a wonderful birth of Seth, not that he takes the place of Abel, but that it testifies to the continuation of God's purpose, that the, the seed of the woman continues. And so why, why is Gilgal so bad? Well, this history goes on. And this is a history where Israel desires to have a king. And they basically protest. They protest because they want a king. Why do they want a king? Because they want to be like the other nations. Now, it's important when the Lord places Israel in the land, what was their purpose? Not to be like the other nations, right? They had this unique picture of heaven. That's the purpose of Canaan. They have the temple. They have the picture of God being in the midst of them, in the midst of the land. The whole land is holy, consecrated unto God. But we find Israel is not satisfied. They want to be like the nations. They value the nations. They want to be like the world. And the Lord has made clear to them at Gilgal that they have a king. He's God. God is their king. He may not be visible like the other kings, but this is where the Lord also celebrates through Moses, where when they're put into the land, what what do the nations say? Oh, what kind of God is this? A God who is so near to his people, who reveals his laws and his statutes and his will. What a God this is. We have to search him out. In other words... Moses said, if you fulfill the ideal as a national people, the nations will look upon you and want your God. But they failed. And so Gilgal is a place where the people, and Samuel's upset, and what does the Lord say? Samuel, they're, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They're rejecting me as their God and their king. That's what they're doing. And so, as Israel rejects the Lord, they get Saul, and Saul, the one, as we know, leads Israel in a very tragic direction. And so, when when you hear this language of Gilgal, it's rolling back, but it's continuing to roll, if you will. That Israel is not going in a positive direction. They're, They're not seeking to follow the Lord. They're continuing to roll down the hill, if you will, is sort of the pun of what can be going on here. And it's the wickedness of their deeds, that the Lord's going to do what? Drive them out of his house. This tells us something about the uniqueness of the land. Because if you think about this land and what has gone on, We think about the house of the Lord being down in Judah. That's the temple. Ephraim's a northern tribe, the northern kingdom. The temple's not there. But when the Lord says, I'm going to drive them out of my house, it tells us how the temple is the land. That the Lord is housed and dwells in this land. So there is a uniqueness to this particular place as Israel is situated in the land of Canaan. So as the Lord will drive them out of his house, it's the Lord saying he'll drive them out of his land. Now if you think about Luke doing the banquet theology and you think about what the banquets mean and and being invited into someone's house. It's a reminder of being in fellowship with God. This is a reminder of being in fellowship with the person who sets you at the table. You're saying we're friends. We, we have a, a certain camaraderie here as individuals. We're, we're associates, right? So when we get together with our family meals, this is what we're saying. We're, we're family. We're together. Uh, this is what we do. So when we're kicked out of the house and no longer welcome, it means we are removed. We are estranged. And that's what the Lord is saying to his people. You are brought out. But now we have, in verse 16, tragedy as well. Because what the, what the prophet brings to the people is Ephraim is stricken. Again, making the reference back to the root, back to death. Their root is dried up. They don't bear fruit. They're not going to give birth. So it's going back to what we've heard in, in parallel. And this is a reminder that Ephraim, Israel, is dead. This root being dried up is an analogy that you can see with the Messianic line, Isaiah 11, where you have the picture of the stump and the tree cut off. And it seems as if God's purpose has failed. But there's a shoot that comes up. And that shoot testifies that the Lord's purpose is not done. But verse 16, when it says the root is dried up, this is death. When they have no children, there is no legacy. That they have died. They're exiled from the land, estranged from God. They are dead. Going on, verse 17, that this identifies them with a terrible line. Because when you look at this line, you have the the promise that my God, so again, it's a prophet speaking. And, and as a prophet is, is reflecting on this, my God will reject them. They have not listened to him. In other words, the people have not heard. Now again, hearing is not just hearing words and being able to, to memorize those words and spit them back out. Hearing is, is where it really resonates and takes residence within us. So Israel hasn't heard. They, they've done the sacrifices. They've done religious rites. But as we've seen in Hosea, they do it to to manipulate the hand of God. We, We do sacrifices. It's a cost of business. God blesses our endeavors. Therefore, we do sacrifices. It's not we do this because we understand we're dependent upon God, period. Going on, there are wanderers among the nations. If you hear this language, hopefully you're thinking back to the opening of Scripture. And what does Cain say to the Lord, where the Lord says, you shall be a wanderer on the earth? This is the echo back. Cain says, my punishment's more than I can bear. To be a wanderer, have no destiny, have no land, have no place of rest. That's what it means to be a wanderer. You you have no place to call home. So when we hear this language of sojourners, as Christians, sojourners means you, you have a goal. You're passing through, and our, our goal is heaven, so we're sojourning like Israel in the wilderness, sojourning to the promised land. But to be a wanderer means you, you have no purpose. You, you, you live, you move, you eat, but there's no destiny. There's no goal. And so this identifies Israel as a Cain-like individual one who is destined to wander and not have life. So we wonder then what is the hope and what is the Lord doing here? When we think about the Lord and who the Lord is, and we think about the identity of what's going on, we have a story that we need to understand the story. And this is why it's important to put this in the context of Hosea 6 verse 7. Like Adam they transgressed my covenant, right? As the Lord is recounting this and as he has is recalled Israel, out of Egypt I called my son, or as he'll go on to say in Hosea 11.1. 1. So he's identifying Israel and Christ. There, there's an intention there. But he's also identifying Israel with Adam. So we have to take the prophetic word and put it in the context of Scripture. Because if, if we take this at face value, what it means is when Moses said to the Lord after the golden calf, when, when the Lord said, I'm going to strike my people dead. I'm done with them. They failed. And Moses said, Lord, what's Egypt going to say? They're going to say, he brings them out by a mighty hand and he can't save them? Only to destroy them? I mean, how foolish are you going to look as God? And so when we read Hosea 9, it sounds as if God's purposes fail. failed. But what is it teaching us? When we put this in the context of Scripture, Paul tells us that Israel is a pedagogue, right? It's a teacher. It's it's the slave that teaches us how to function appropriately at the feast. So we're not starting a food fight. We know how to address adults. We're not bringing shame to the family, right? That's the purpose of the pedagogue when he puts it in that context. What Israel teaches us because what, what do we say? I think many children ask this question. You know, what if Adam didn't fail? What if he, he didn't mess up? Or boy, if I was there, I would have kicked Satan out of Eden. I would have triumphed. What Israel teaches us is we are weak as human beings. And it teaches us that here you have a scenario where a new Adam is placed in a new Garden of Eden with a priesthood With ceremonial rites, with cleansings, with sacrifices, with all options to to backtrack when they mess up. So it's, it's like Adam, but it's actually a little easier because you have a community of people to encourage one another. You have priests ordained. You have sacrifices. And so you think this would be easier. But it teaches us that we are a people who are prone to sin, prone to wander, prone to take our affections and love off our God. It teaches us that we are not going to stand up to Satan in our own strength. And so why does Hosea use this morbid and tragic language of of death? And it's horrible death that he's talking about, not even just elderly. I mean, it's, it's sad death in this narrative. Because he's talking about what must happen. A child must die. And in order for the Lord's wrath to be appeased, a child must die. And as Hosea will go on, must be raised up to life. So here Hosea 9 is reminding us of the the tragedy of what has happened in the fall. Because what do we do? We want to sanctify it. We, we want to minimize it, right? Like Israel at Baal worship. Oh, it's not gross immorality I'm engaged in. It's worship. It's a meaningful interaction with a God. It's worship. And Hosea is saying, no, it's not worship. It's immorality. Let's call it what it is. And that's what Hosea is getting at. The tragedy of sin is not where the Lord can just do a little outward polish and, and clean us up a little bit outwardly. The core of our being needs to be regenerated and renewed. We need to move from death to life and to truly have a recreation experience or event. That's what Hosea is saying. And he's saying to us today and to the current people, it's not just a superficial problem. It's not just an outward problem. We need to be recreated in the power of God. And we need to move from death to life. So now when we hear the Apostle Paul, we hear Christ talking about crucifying the flesh so that there's life, right? We're dying to self, living unto God, this sort of language. It's this passage. It's, it's, it's basically what this passage is getting at. We need to die to self, understanding that life is only found in Christ. It's only found in the power of the Spirit, emptying ourselves of all hope, emptying ourselves of all significance in self, hope in self, triumph in self, triumph in ideals. It's only being triumphant in Christ Jesus. And so when we ask that question, does this mean that the Lord's purpose has failed? Does this mean that the Lord is not able to carry out his redemptive priorities and and that the Lord is unable to prevail over Satan? No, the Lord is teaching us something through Israel. And he's teaching us that superficial sacrifices, outward actions, a, a, a land where even God dwells in the midst of his people, a call for his people to be tuned into the statutes, giving very clear, specific statutes. That's not enough. We're not going to cleanse ourselves. We're not going to triumph over Satan in our own strength. We're not going to overcome sin in our own strength. We need Christ. And Christ has to come and intervene and trample the serpent's head. And so when Christ goes to the cross and has to die, it's not because Christ just wants to show some drama or show how powerful he is. He has to go to the cross as a perfect sacrifice. The irony of Pilate being a pagan priest, if you will, declaring the sanctity of the sacrifice. I find no guilt in him, right? Declaring his innocence. Christ going to death, being raised to life, gives us the assurance that the Lord will prevail. It's the Lord who prevails, not us. We only prevail in Christ by his regenerative power, as we walk in his spirit, our call as we hear this is to be tuned in to how we can be so easily seduced by other beliefs, other gods, other systems, other places of comfort other than the true God. And what Hosea is doing is calling us back, believing that our God is sufficient, he is our king, he is our redeemer, He is our shield and defender, and we are not meanders and wanderers through this age. We are sojourners, grounded in Christ, made alive and triumphant in our Redeemer, with our eyes focused on the true eternal land of heaven that we taste in the power of the Spirit. Let us then learn from those who have gone before us. Let us walk in the power of the Spirit. And let us see the beauty that we are no longer under the pedagogue, the teacher, this master who would teach us how to function, but we are being taught by our Lord and Savior as we walk in his spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you read and and encourage this gospel message. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing confessional church that is based in Belgrade, Montana. Please visit our webpage, urcbelgrade.com, that is B-E-L-G-R-A-D-E.com to find out more information about our church and utilize our sermon archive. Most of all, we hope to see you sojourning and fellowshiping with us each Sunday. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.